Now I'm encouraged to see all you here, especially those of you that uh, were here this morning for our morning worship and read the sermon title in the bulletin, or if maybe you drove by and saw it on the sign outside, the title tonight, The Believers Struggle with Sin, and you still showed up. (laughs) Maybe you've come tonight, hopefully, for some help in this area. Maybe you've just come because you've been compelled to, but pray that God's word will be both convicting and convincing tonight as we look at this great passage of scripture. I want to begin with a time of confession. Now, there's no need to stand up or raise your hand at each of these things, but I want to know if you identify with these struggles. Who here knows the importance of daily time in the word, but neglect it? Who knows the importance of regular times of prayer, but get too busy? You know the vitality of scripture memory, but you put it off because it's difficult. You know Sunday worship is important, but you decide to sleep in. You know the importance of honoring speech, but you find yourself using inappropriate language or gossiping when around certain types of people. You know the importance of God's gift of Sabbath rest, but are prone to be a workaholic. Children, you know the command to obey your parents, but you disrespect them because you want space. You know the importance of keeping your desires pure, that you you allow your eyes to wander, hands to click on that website, mind to dwell on perverse things. You know the importance of generosity and contributing to the needs of the saints, but yet you withhold good from whom it is due. You also know the importance of trusting God and being content, but you obsess for more. You obsess for what you don't have. Am I the only one who identifies with these struggles? Have I only aired my list of dirty laundry? But I think tonight here, this battle... These tensions here, this is the battle of the believer. We know what is right. We are alive unto God in the Holy Spirit. We know that we are dead to sin, but yet we still desire and do what is wrong, what we hate. And there's much debate in this passage that we are going to look at now. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, we pick it up in verse 14, and tonight we're just going to cover through verse 20, but I want to read for us now verses 14 to 25. This will be a two-part sermon series, the first part tonight, 14 to 20, second part, 21 to 25, next Sunday. Please listen as I read. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. 
So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. You know, there's much debate here. In this passage that I just read of, who is this speaking of? Is this a believer or an unbeliever? And Paul uses, uh, admittingly, some interesting language that could be confusing. But from the title, I guess, you could probably tell where I land on the issue of who he is speaking of, of the believer. But we have to mention the debate because it's prevalent. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ who lean both ways. And so I want to avoid a straw man argument uh, against the unbeliever case, against that side, but admittedly, for the sake of time, I can't really be thorough. We could just spend all night in a theological discourse of that nature. And so if you would like to, we can meet afterwards, we can meet sometime this week to discuss these things. But as before we begin, and before, we, uh, before I really look at uh, the text here, I want to just lay out the case to summarize the viewpoint of those that would hold Paul is speaking here of an unbeliever. As I've already told you, I believe that Paul is speaking of a believer. But to summarize the opposite side, they would begin in verse 14. In light of chapter 6, how can this statement then that he is sold into bondage of sin be of the unbeliever. And so there's, the statement begins there. If you remember where we were in chapter 6 of how believers don't continue in a pattern of sin, if you've been truly justified, then in this process of our sanctification, of becoming more like Christ in this life, our deeds, the pattern of our life, shows that. And we know also that we've been set free from sin, that we are no longer under the power of sin. We are no longer under the penalty of sin. And so then when Paul gets to this section, this interesting language here kind of confuses things. And so those that would hold to that he's speaking of an unbeliever would point to, beginning in verse 14, this this statement of sold into bondage of sin, and then move to verse 18, in the, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. We know that that is true. Nothing good dwells in me. Verse 20, then he says, sin dwells in me. And verse 24, when he calls himself wretched man that I am, 
Who will set me free from this body of sin? And so the, the, those statements there are what, they, what uh, someone in this camp would use to hold the, the view that this is, Paul is speaking here of an unbeliever, of someone who is just sitting under the law, maybe a Jewish person, a Jewish unbeliever sitting under the law who would recognize these things. And really this approach comes from taking a linear approach from, from Romans 6, 7, and 8. That as we go through the life, we move from one chapter to the next in our experience of sanctification, of our experience of becoming more like Christ. We know then, we've seen these big headings that Romans chapter 6 is the believer's uh, relationship to sin, Here in in chapter 7 is the believer's relationship to the law. And in Romans chapter 8, which we will get to, is the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit. And so there's this sense, they they take this, uh, uh, this linear approach that we move from one chapter to the next. And there might be some truth in that, but I really think that's a misunderstanding here. Because I would say that as a believer, we experience all three chapters simultaneously. That the believer's experience of growing in Christ-likeness, of walking with the Lord here in this life, is one where we experience all of those things. Where we experience this freedom from sin, and yet this struggle, this battle here that Paul talks about, and the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to live a godly life. And so this battle will always be here. His battle that Paul is speaking of in this section of Scripture. But, when, but success will happen in our Christian life. Growth happens as our propensity to sin diminishes, though the ability to sin remains. And that's the issue here in this passage. Remember, in our justification, I've just mentioned this briefly, but in our justification, we are freed from sin's penalty And in our sanctification, now we've been freed from sin's power over us. But it is not until glorification, when we meet the Lord, that we will be free from sin's presence in our life. And so now let's look here at verses 14 to 20 from the lens of this being a believer. And I want to show you why I think this, as Paul is speaking of believers, as we, as we work our way through it. And he could even be speaking of mature believers, because I really believe that this is the normal experience of all Christians. And so in verses 20, or 14 to 25, Paul is going to call out three struggles. Three struggles. And tonight in part one, we're just going to look at the first two. And next week we will cover uh, the final struggle and the conclusion to this. And so we have a struggle. And within each of these, it's very easy. I have a very simple outline for you, some very simple structure. We'll have a we'll struggle number one, and then we'll have the problem, and then we'll have the proof, and then we'll have the provenance or the source. Not providence, but I was trying to make it catchy for you all, so they'll start with P. We have the problem, and then we have the proof, and then we have the provenance. And the provenance just literally means the source. It's used in, in artwork. It's used uh, with, uh, with fine pieces of, uh, of uh, paintings and other artistic things. The original, the one that the artist originally made. It's back to the source, the headwaters. And so we're going to look at each of these things. And so struggle number one, beginning in verse 14, is that believers remain of flesh. 
Struggle number one that Paul is going to call out here in the believer's battle with sin and the believer's struggle with sin is that believers remain of flesh. Get that right. Get that right. Of flesh. Because this is going to be very, very, very important for us. And so in verse 14, in regards to this first struggle, we have the problem. And he's going to continue on. He's going to connect us to the, the message from last week, beginning with four. And he sums it up. For we know the law is spiritual. And last week we saw that. that the, what did we learn about the personality of the law? That it is holy, righteous, and good. That the law is good in and of itself. That God gave us the law. And so to sum it up here, in verse 14, Paul's going to call it spiritual. For we know that the law is spiritual. But then we get to this next word here. But. But. And we've seen this many times throughout Romans. And, and you know, there's some great contrasts here. There's some great interruptions that when we find but God. But this is not that kind of but. This is the but that is dreaded in the doctor's consultation. The blood work looks great. But we found something on the x-ray that we need to investigate further. This is the but that is dreaded when the boss calls you into the office. Your work ethic has been great. But we've done some restructuring in the company and we're going to have to terminate your position. This is one of those kind of buts in the problem. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. And this is here where we have to take, where we have to take a close look here. Okay? He's saying the law is spiritual, but your flesh is not. He says we are of flesh, and this is the important difference because he's not saying we are in the flesh. Because when Paul speaks of being in the flesh which he, he mentions back in verse 5 of chapter 7. Look there with me. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Who's that speaking of when we are in the flesh? An unbeliever. When we are in the flesh, he is speaking of an unbeliever. He also mentions being in the flesh later in chapter 8. Turn over there if you want. Chapter 8, verse 8. And those who are in, in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. In the flesh, speaking of an unbeliever. But I would submit to you that when he's speaking of the flesh, he is not speaking of an unbeliever, but recognizing our fleshly existence. It could be better even translated, for I am fleshly, he's saying here. Turn over to, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll see Paul also use this same of the flesh. What he's recognizing, you know, he's, he's not saying that we are in the flesh, whereas we are controlled and mastered by sin, but he's recognizing that we still have these bodies, that we are still fleshly. We still have the bodies born of Adam. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, look at this. He's, he's saying the same thing, speaking here of believers. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you. He's, he calls them brethren, brothers. Brothers in the Lord could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as men of flesh, fleshly men, as to infants in Christ. And so here he's speaking of carnal Christians, those who are found in Christ but are yet infants. 
acting like they are unbelievers. He said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you weren't able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. There it is again. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? And so, who is Paul speaking of here in verse 14? He's speaking to believers. We have this great contrast. The problem is, is that we are still, we remain of flesh. That you and I, as believers, sitting here justified, sitting here dead to sin, are still here in these bodies. Still in here in these bodies that have been corrupted by sin. Last week we saw the pervasiveness of sin that it came in, used even the law, which is spiritual, which is holy, righteous, and good, to destroy us, that came in to deceive and to kill us. And here now he's recognizing that we still have these bodies that have been, that have been corrupted by Adam's sin. And so we see the connection, even back to the argument he made way back in chapter 5. And so now he's saying, because of this, this is still a problem here in this life. This is still a struggle, still a battle, even amongst believers. This is why we could say we are sinning saints. We are yet sinful, even though we stand justified before God. And as we continue on here, now we we do have to deal with this tough statement, sold into bondage to sin. And it is difficult, especially at first glance. But I want to quote here John MacArthur. He has some great insight into what Paul means here. Paul states in verse 14 that he is sold into bondage to sin. Verse 23 gives us a similar statement. He says, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. But how can that be since we have Christians have been delivered from sin? The phrase sold into bondage to sin is literally translating having been sold under the sin. That refers to the sin principle, the product of the fall of man, not to individual sins committed. Being sold into bondage of sin doesn't mean Paul actively committed himself to sinning. As it's said about others in the Bible, it means he recognized that in this life, we as believers will constantly have to battle sin because of our fleshly nature, because of our human nature. And so our bodies have been sold into this bondage, that same thing that we talked about back in chapter 5, the same argument. So Paul's, he's, he's coming off of that. He's using that proof here now to talk about this problem here that even as believers even as justified believers this problem still remains to sum up the problem in struggle number one believers remain of flesh we still have these fallen bodies in this fallen world and so what's the proof there's the problem verses 15 and 16 then are the proof that this is true and there's really three things here three frustrating things first is we do the things we know are wrong (laughs) the very thing we know that is wrong we do them anyways and secondly we don't do the things we know are right those things that were maybe spoken of in the confession at the very beginning do you see that 
I mean, we know this battle. What I'm doing, I don't understand. It's beyond our comprehension, frustrating. How many of you have engaged in sin and be like, why in the world did I even do that? I know it's wrong. I hate that I do it. I've done it before. I've repented before the Lord. I've, I've been laid low by this before, and I've done it yet again. What in the world is going on here? It's frustrating to us. We do the things that we know we shouldn't, and we neglect the things to do that, that we know we should do. This is the proof that this problem that we are still of flesh. But the third proof is is that we are convicted by these things. We do the things we know are wrong. We don't do the things we know are right. And finally, we are convicted by it. Notice the language that he used. We agree with the law. I agree with the law and I confess that the law is good. It's showing here that he knows that, the, he's, that these things are wrong, that, this is, he, that the law is holy, righteous, and good. We know it's right, and we stand guilty for our transgression of it. There's the proof that this problem is there, and that this is the battle for the believer. It's the proof. So what's the source, the provenance? Verse 17. Verse 17. So now... No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In a word, the source, sin. Sin. And it might sound here like he's blame shifting it, doesn't it? Saying, well, I didn't do it. He made me do it. I didn't do, I didn't do it. It's sin in me. I, I can't be the one to blame. But I would say that his confession initially rules all that out, his conviction of it. He knows he's responsible just as you and I are. And I would just warn us all here tonight, don't ever for a minute think that you are not responsible for your sin. Don't ever play the victim card and say, sin made me do it. Yes, Christ paid the penalty for our sin. But even as believers, there are still consequences in this life for engaging in sin. Consequences of broken relationships, consequences uh, that maybe are financial in nature, or uh, consequences in our family, our home, our employment. So don't for a minute ever think you're not that you're not responsible for your sin. There are consequences in this life, and there is accountability at the Bema seat in regards to our rewards as believers. And yet there's a distinction here. There's a distinction here about this sin that he is speaking of. He's speaking of remaining sin in us, not reigning sin over us. And there's an important distinction in these two things because we as believers, we have remaining sin in our flesh, but not reigning sin as master over us. You might call remaining sin, for some of, those, some of you that are familiar with this concept, it's also known as indwelling sin. The sin that dwells in us, that's what, he's, that's what he refers to it as, but sin which dwells in me, sin which remains in this flesh. I have this corrupted flesh here, so sin has remained in it. That's why this battle exists. That's why this struggle remains even for the believer. Because I have this remaining sin not reigning sin. Romans 6 has already told us that we have been freed from that. We are dead to reigning sin as a king or master reigns over his subjects. 
Reigning sin we have been dead to. That power has been distinguished in our life. Yet sin remains here. You see the distinction there? Do you see that distinction in the believer versus the unbeliever? And so this battle continues in the believer. This struggle continues because sin hasn't left. Those old habits that were true of us when we weren't believers are often still like reflexes in us. And to go back to an old illustration, is sometimes we find ourselves there playing around that great dividing wall. That yes, we've been taken from the, the territory of Adam and his representation of us. And we've, Christ has taken us physically over that wall, never to go back into that territory. And we now are under the dominion of Christ. He as our master. He as our champion. He as our ruler over our life. And yet we are still in that territory, in these bodies while here on this earth. And we know the familiar call. We know, our bodies know those old habits that we have. But for the believer, until our glorification, we have a new master, but the same old bodies. And this causes a struggle in us. This is part of the reason for the battle. So struggle number two Verses 18 to 20 follow in line with this. That struggle number one, that believers remain of the flesh in these bodies. Struggle number two is that sin remains in the flesh. Believers remain of the flesh and now sin remains in the flesh. And so battle two is really an elaboration of this previous source. We know that it is sin that has caused this, that it is sin that is reigning in the, remaining, I should say, in the body. And so now as we get to this struggle, we're just, it's like we're, we're pulling back the layers. We're just peeling it back as we know we're in this struggle. And so what, what we're doing now is just exposing this. Maybe you find yourself in this struggle. And so as you wonder, why do I do the things that I hate and don't do the things that I want to do as a believer? Peeling back these layers to see the ugliness of what lies beneath this sin, this great battle that is taking place in us. So struggle number two, sin remains in the flesh. The problem, look at the first part of verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Like I said, what was the source of the previous struggle is now the problem in this second. The next layer down. Even as believers, is there any good in our flesh? Even as justified believers, is there any good in our flesh? No, not until we receive our resurrected, glorified bodies. These are still the old, sin-corrupted bodies that are unable to do good in and of themselves. And so you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm a believer. I know that I can do good. And yes, we can do good as believers. But it's because of Christ, through the Holy Spirit's power in us, that we are able to do good. The good that we do now is from an outside source, enabling us to do that. We're just plugged in. We don't have the power in and of ourselves. It is not an internal ability to do what is good. There's nothing good that remains in us. We just tap in to an outside source. So this problem here, verse 18, sum it up, is that sin remains in our flesh. 
The proof then, the rest of verse 18 and 19. We desire to do good, but we don't. What's the proof that the sin remains in our flesh? That we desire to do good and we don't. We desire to not practice evil, but we do it anyways. This is the same as before, really, isn't it? We don't do what we want, that we know that we should do, and we do what we know is wrong. But this problem, this, this, this sin, it manifests itself in the same way. We're just like, just discovering the depths of the corruption behind our sinful actions. Can call it evil here. Takes it to another level, another depth of, of sin here. And he calls, I practice the very evil that I do not want. He can call it evil. Paul can call this evil here because of conviction and the knowledge of the depth of this corruption compared to God's holiness. This, this is a man, this has to be a believer here because this is a man who knows the greatness and the grandeur of God's holiness and the standard that is set forth in the law. And then he sees his sin now as a man convicted and knows the ugliness of it. An unbeliever doesn't have this conviction an unbeliever doesn't know the greatness of God and his sin. He is not under it. He, to him, his actions are good. He's just doing what he wants. An unbeliever doesn't call this struggle, doesn't call these things good. Or he doesn't call them evil. He calls them good. This battle doesn't exist. This struggle doesn't exist in an unbeliever. There's no conflict of soul for them. There's no lamenting of this nature in an unbeliever. Only in a believer who recognizes what is good and his failure to do it and his only ability to do it because of what Christ has done in him. An unbeliever is just doing exactly what they want. So what's the provenance? What's the source in verse 20? It's the same as before again. It's sin, the remaining sin. This is so pervasive. It is so corrupt. This indwelling sin, it doesn't just reign over the believer any longer, but it lingers. It goes from the king of our life to the covert agent in our life that's seeking to destroy us. From king to covert agent. And it hasn't gone away. It remains lurking around. Got to remember now that this is all in context to our relationship to the law, that which is spiritual, that which is holy, righteous, and good. The law, what is it? It acts as a mirror, right? When we hold up what is spiritual, when we hold up that mirror, it exposes things for what they really are. And Paul, as he's writing these things, as a believer, as the law has been held up before him, it is exposing the sin. He's seeing all the details and the depth of the ugliness of his own soul. The more we understand, the more we love the holiness of God, the greater the struggle becomes. Because the, the same, this, to the same degree that our understanding and our love for the holiness of God and the things of God and the law of God, His word that holds us up to the same degree that we grow in affection for that is in the same degree that our disgust for sin grows in our own life. And when one grows this way and one grows that way, the battle becomes even more intense. And so sometimes for even mature believers... 
For some of you who've been in the faith for decades, the, the, the battle for over sin be, can become even more intense, even more gripping to the soul. Because it's like a rubber band that's being stretched towards the goodness of God and an understanding of the corruption of the sin in our life. The farther that rubber band gets stretched, the more tension is there. Such is the case for this struggle in the believer's life. Why? You say, well, why? That's not very hopeful. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to grow in Christ-likeness. That's not very, that's not very helpful. But it is what is true. It's often the reality. Why is this the case? Well, one, I think it's so we don't get too comfortable here. Because this isn't our home. Because these bodies are not the, the, our final uh, garments. We have a greater body to look forward to. We have one that is freed from the very presence of sin to look forward to, which make us long for the Lord's return even more in this battle. It should make our eyes point to the heavens. And we long that we'll be freed from sin's presence in the battle in this life. It keeps us expectant. It keeps us eager. It should keep us diligent to watch and to wait for when that great trumpet call comes. To the unbeliever who's listening to this message, who's hearing these words, you must be thinking that Christians are crazy. This is the life you have to look forward to, to come to Christ. You've been, my neighbor's been telling me I need to believe in Jesus. I've been wondering what this is all about. Well, you're right, following Christ is costly. Have you come to grips with who you really are? Have you allowed the mirror to come up and expose your soul? Do you realize that you've offended holy God, your creator? You who unbelieve? You who have not placed your faith in Christ, do you know that he has offered terms for peace? That Christ has done this? That he has paid your penalty? And if you tonight feel yourself sitting under judgment, appeal to Christ. Admit your sin. Believe on Christ. Bow to his rule over you. I came across this great story. It is said that a flippant young man once remarked to a preacher in mocking fashion, you say that unsaved people carry a great weight of sin. Frankly, I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? 10 pounds, 50 pounds, 80 pounds, 100 pounds? The preacher thought for a moment, then replied, If you laid a 400-pound weight on a corpse, would it feel the load? The young man was quick to say, Of course not, it's dead. Driving home his point, the preacher said, The person who doesn't know Christ is equally dead. And though the load is great, he feels none of it. If you're an unbeliever and you don't feel this weight, pray that you would because there's someone who will remove it from you. To the believer, I encourage you to take heart. A battle is normal. The tension is great, but it is normal. The struggle is normal. And you may feel like your life is this cosmic wrestling match. 
A back and forth, back and forth, never ending. He takes a point, you take a point. He gets a takedown, you get a takedown. He wins the match, you win the next match. It's back and forth, back and forth. And this great wrestling match, these great bursts of, of, of energy and, and time consumption. I would tell you that the law functions as a holy, righteous, and good coach in that match. He's teaching you how to win and exposing the enemy's ways. But I'll tell you what, the coach can't wrestle for you. He can just tell you what to do. But you can't put the coach into the match. But you know who can and who already did wrestle this match for you? Christ Jesus did. Christ Jesus has already wrestled it. And it's his spirit that lives in us. And so, oh weary saint, tired of sin tonight, take heart. Yes, the burden of the battle may be great, but turn to Christ. The one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if you find yourself in this struggle tonight, I would tell you to continue casting yourself on Christ. Casting yourself on Christ is not just a one-time event that we do at our conversion. It is something that we repeatedly do day in and day out, leaning wholly on Christ, depending upon Him for every move. It's not just the one-time event at the battle's beginning, but it is a continued tactic all throughout the struggle. And it is that way that you will only ever achieve victory. It is the only way that you will persevere in the faith. It is only the way that you will work out your salvation. Cast yourself on Christ. Turn your eyes to him. As we close in a few minutes here, we're going to sing this song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I hope that this song reminds you of this tactic in this struggle. We turn our eyes to Jesus. So I think it's helpful here as we think about this struggle. You know, when I was a wrestler, you know, and you might say this is a battle strategy as well, but you would go into a wrestling match And the first thing that you would have to do is you would have to identify your opponent. Who am I even wrestling tonight? What's his name? Who is he? Identify the enemy. Identify the opponent. And your struggle with sin, have you identified the opponent? Do you know the enemy? Do you know who you're fighting against? What specific sin it is? Have you identified it in your life? Has the law been held up to show you what the enemy is? Second thing that I had to do is then identify my vulnerable positions, the vulnerable moves. What, did, what were his moves? And how, what were his strengths? And how was he going to come? Where was I vulnerable to his attacks? What was his signature move? How would he win this match? And your struggle with sin, where are you vulnerable? Where does the enemy continue to defeat you? Where do you find yourselves when you are, when you are losing the battle? Identify that. And then come up with a counterattack. Practice your moves. Train hard. You've identified the enemy. You know his, his uh, strengths. You know where you are vulnerable. Then train hard. Practice your moves. <laughs> study God's word. Study the, your defenses. Study your ammunition. Then imitate the champion. Go find out who's already beat this guy. Because he's not undefeated. Who's beat him and what worked against it? 
And this is where we turn our eyes to Christ. Because when he was tempted in the wilderness, when Satan was coming at him to tempt him, what did he use? What was his ammo? The law of God. Deuteronomy. What was his ammo? And if this is the champion that defeated it, that was the only undefeated champion of the world, wouldn't it do us well to imitate the one who's already won? Right? Imitate him. Train hard. Practice these things. Know God's word. And so that way when you find yourself in the battle, that way when you find yourself in the struggle, that way when you're on this wrestling mat, then the discipline you had in the preparation combined with the Holy Spirit's power in you and the knowledge that you can win this match. Eyes fixed on the prize. That's the combination for success in the struggle. So take hope. Take heart. Struggle is real. The struggle is intense. But victory is possible. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are grateful for passages of scripture like this that cut us to the quick. That speak to reality as it really is. It doesn't just give us this uh, peaches and cream vision of what life as a believer is like. But thank you that even though this, these struggles remain, even though that we are still in these sin-infested bodies, that we have a future hope that we look forward to, and we've been given a recipe for success even here in regards to this struggle. So help us in this, God. Equip us in this. Encourage us in the struggle. We pray these things in Christ's name, one undefeated reigning champion of the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.